Father, that is the prayer of our hearts as we come to the study of your word, that indeed we would hear you speak to us, the very living voice of the living God. And may your word find acceptance, may it find lodging deep within our souls, to the place where we understand it and we live it out. And as we live it out, we experience your rich blessing, your peace, your power, your presence. And most of all, Lord, when we study the word, it is our prayer that you will show us Christ. As we begin a new year, Lord, we look to you to guide and direct and to bless. And we dedicate this entire time to you. We don't know how much of it we will have. But Lord, we want to live every day of 2016 for your glory. And show us Christ. Show us Christ here at South like we have never seen him before. And may we have the privilege of showing him, proclaiming him, sharing him with Lansing and the world. We pray all these things in the name of Christ, our Lord, our Savior, our friend, and all the people of God said, Amen. 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 There were two congregations that were rather close in a small community, and they decided to merge. They figured instead of two small, struggling churches, let's unite. Let's become one larger, more effective church. And I think that really is a good idea. And so they tried it, but they couldn't pull it off. It didn't work. And the reason? They couldn't decide how to recite the Lord's Prayer. You see, one group insisted, praying, Lord, forgive us of our transgressions. The others demanded, forgive us of our debts. And because they couldn't agree on how to recite the Lord's Prayer, they didn't merge. The real tragedy is this. The local newspaper printed it up and said, one church went back to its trespasses and the other church went back to its debts. <laughs> it's funny and it's tragic. That's what the world often thinks of Christianity. They simply can't get along and they're so divided, they're so fractured. There's nothing compelling often in the church to draw the world because what they see in the church is nothing that they want. And so for a good theme verse for a new year, I invite you to look at Romans chapter 15 and verse 7. We'll have it on the screen. And we're going to take it apart piece by piece in a few minutes that we have. Romans 15 and verse 7. Accept one another. And the word then tells us this is a conclusion. Actually, this is a conclusion of a discussion that began in chapter 14 and verse 1. Accept one another is what Paul told the church at Rome. Receive one another. And now he reiterates that in verse 7 of chapter 15. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you. And then finally he says, in order that, purpose statement, you will bring praise or glory to God. What a great, rich verse. 
First of all, notice there is a principle involved. It kind of answers the question, what? And we're told to accept others. This is the exhortation. Accept others. It is a command. It is uh, God's word to us. It's not optional. It is not just a suggestion. It is God's command. Accept others one another. Uh, the word, the actual Greek word, is a compound word, and it has the little prefix pros, which intensifies the verb. So it's not just welcome one another. It's the idea of welcome one another with open arms. If you want a picture, read Luke chapter 15. Remember the prodigal uh, who went off? He was the son who wanted the inheritance before his father died. He took all that his father had and squandered it in wicked living, and then he realized that he had lost all the blessings that he once enjoyed in his father's household, so he repented and went back. And the father was looking for him to return. Remember that story? And Jesus told this story to teach us how much God loves us. And that every returning sinner receives this welcome with open arms. This love that in grace forgives us of all of our sins and restores us back into the family and into the fold. That's how we are to receive one another. I think the church is at a crossroads in many respects, but in particular because of this dynamic. We do not accept one another like we should. And it's a toss-up. Is it going to be extreme persecution that is going to crush the church? Or is it going to be petty divisions that implode the church? I'm not sure. Jesus said, I'll build my church. So we know for sure the church is going to go on. But I tell you, the manifestation of the church of Jesus Christ, both in America and around the world today, is extremely sad because she is so divided. Now, it was like that in the first century. They were divided over the Jew-Gentile question. In fact, that's what Paul is going to get to in Romans 15 in just a moment after he says, accept one another. Then he brings up the biggest taboo of the day, the biggest ethnic division that they experienced, this division between Jew and Gentile. They were divided over many other things. Corinth, that church was divided over celebrities. I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. My leader's Peter. Oh, and we have that today, don't we? And I could name the celebrities, and some of you would say, I like that guy. I like, oh, I don't like that one. I'm of this guy. I'm not of that guy. The church at Laodicea was so divided between what was godly and what wasn't, what was worldly, that it made God sick. Remember that famous verse, I wish you were hot or cold, but because you're in the middle, you make me sick. The church in Galatia was ravaged by legalism, but what about the church at Rome? Very interesting uh, uh, historical perspective. This is given by Oscar Coleman, who wrote that he believed the martyrs, Paul and Peter, the guys who were thrown into prison, ultimately killed, martyred for their faith, he believes that some of them, maybe both of them, 
were actually given in, that is, their names were given to the Roman authorities as traitors to the empire, that Christians revealed these two leaders as traitors to the Roman Empire. And because of rivalry and bitterness and jealousy, they were arrested and ultimately killed, which means, if that is true, that Christians helped feed Christians to the lions in the Roman Colosseum. I'd never thought of that before. How tragic would that be? The church turning on itself instead of embracing one another. So here's a command. In, Philippia, or in the book of Philemon, verse 17, Paul said to Philemon, if you consider me a partner, then welcome me. Welcome Onesimus as you would welcome me. Welcome the straying one who's now coming back just as you would welcome your dear friend. And one of the things that we know happened in the church of Rome is that they were divided over questionable things. If you just look at chapter 14, there's a division between the strong Christian and the weak Christian. And the strong Christians were getting on the weak Christians because they had so many convictions. The strong Christians were really those who had liberty to eat or to drink. And they understood that uh, there was no sin in the actual food that they were taking in. But the weak Christians had a whole bunch of lists and rules that people had to follow. And the strong Christians would look down at the weak Christians. The weak Christians, on the other hand, would condemn the strong Christians because they felt they were sinning. They had liberties that the weak Christian didn't have. And when these strong Christians would enjoy their Christian liberty, why, the weak ones would condemn them. So the strong were looking down on the unfortunates, and the weak were condemning those who had liberty. And Paul said, this is not the way the church ought to be. In fact, look what he says in Romans chapter 15 and verse 1. After discussing the whole area of questionable activity, he says in verse 1, those who are strong ought to bear with the weaknesses, the failings of the weak, and don't please yourself. So he tells us what we ought to do except one another, and then he tells us how to do it. Verse 1 of chapter 15, don't please yourself. Verse 2, each of us should please his neighbor for his good. Verse 3, even Christ didn't please himself. I thought we weren't supposed to be men pleasers. I mean, isn't that what Paul says in Galatians chapter 1? Am I now trying to win the approval of men, or am I trying to earn the approval of God? Am I trying to please men? If I try to please men, I'm not the servant of Christ. That's Galatians 1.10. And now the same author, Paul, says... Stop pleasing yourself. Learn to please your neighbor because that's exactly what Jesus did. Very interesting. I like the comment that John Stott has on this. He says, neighbor pleasing, which the scripture commands, must not be confused with men pleasing, which the scripture condemns. <laughs> What's neighbor pleasing? Well, it says in the text that you are to please your neighbor for their good. In other words, you are to do things that will benefit them spiritually. 
Put their best interests ahead of yours. Don't please yourself. Please them. Benefit them. Whereas a man pleaser is simply trying to flatter someone, curry their favor, court their approval, and they often compromise truth to do it for their own benefit. So I want to please you, hoping that you will benefit me. That's a man pleaser, and the scripture says don't do it. But a neighbor pleaser is one who says, what can I do to spiritually benefit you? I will, I will overlook my own agenda. I will overlook my own desires and pleasures so that I can minister to you. And if you don't have that type of humility in the church of Jesus Christ, you will never have the type of unity that he is requesting because humility promotes unity. And you cannot have harmony without humility. If you're married, you know exactly what I'm talking about. If there isn't a little losing of yourself for the benefit of your mate, then your marriage is on rocky ground and perhaps it's already dissolved. It's the same thing in a church. And churches divide because people are arrogant and proud and wanting to please themselves above everything else. They're men-pleasers. It's not an easy thing to live in unity. I think Augustine was right when he said, in the essential things there must be unity, in the non-essential things there must be liberty, but in everything there has to be charity. That's a great perspective. But determining what is essential and non-essential is the difficult part of that little syllogism. And that's why spiritual leaders are to guide and direct the flock. And so be knowledgeable, so deep, so acquainted with the Word of God that they can establish what is essential and what is non-essential and encourage and direct the church. Vance Havner, an old preacher from the country, who loved to use humor in his sermons, once coined, I believe, coined this little ditty. He said, to live above with the saints we love, oh, that will be glory. But to live below with the saints we know, well, that's another story. <laughs> and that's the truth. It's not easy. And we have an opportunity in a new year to accept one another by not pleasing ourselves but pleasing each other for their spiritual benefit. That's the exhortation. Now, the illustration in verse 7 is we are to receive each other just like Christ received us. If you look at verse 3, you see Christ is the illustration of this not pleasing yourself. Jesus didn't even please himself. As it is written, and here's a flashback to Psalm 69, the insults of those who insulted you have fallen on me. The you there is referring to God the Father. But it's applied to Jesus Christ, which means that Christ chose a path, intentionally chose a path, in which he knew insult and persecution and resistance would come upon him because he was being identified with the Father. He could have chosen a path that would have been much easier. He could have chosen a path that would have distanced himself from some of the more restrictive things of holiness and righteousness. But he didn't do that. He emptied himself, as it says in Philippians chapter 2, 
and he intentionally, as the Lord of glory, sought to serve others instead of his own agenda. And the best example of that is the cross. The cross of Jesus Christ shows us that he said, not my will, but yours be done. He was willing to go even to the cross, to the point of death, to please us, to redeem us, to forgive us. That's the best illustration of putting others first. When you read Philippians chapter 2, it says Jesus was equal with God. Talk about strong. He was perfect. But he left all of those heavenly privileges and became a a human being, so that he could suffer in our place and redeem us from the penalty of the law. That's living not to please yourself, but to please others. And that's exactly how we need to live to promote unity. Jesus not only did this to save us, notice what he did to receive us. If you look at verse 7, it says that we are to accept others just as Christ accepted us. How did Jesus accept you? Think about that for a moment. How did Jesus receive you? By grace, right? He received you wholeheartedly and gladly. He received you tenderly lovingly, impartially, freely, and on and on you could go. We are to accept each other just as Christ has accepted us. I'm sure people in Rome said, Paul, you don't understand what you're saying. I live next to a person who's impossible. And now they've come to faith in Christ, and you're telling me to accept them and welcome them into the body and overlook the differences between us? And Jesus says to that individual, or Paul would say on behalf of the Lord to that individual, how did I receive you? You're no prize. When I saved you, it wasn't because of your righteousness. When I saved you, it wasn't because of your great personality. Talk about quirks. Let me name 15 of them for you right now. But God has accepted you. Isn't that amazing? Aren't you surprised that God has accepted you? Oh, you're not? (laughs) There's the problem. And just as Jesus accepted us, so we to accept one another. Listen to Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 32. Be kind and compassionate to one another. Forgive each other just as Christ, just as in Christ God forgave you. Be imitators of God. Just like dearly loved children, forgive and love just as he loves. Now, if you want some encouragement to do this, I love verse 4 because it tells us that's exactly what the Scriptures will do for us. Everything written in the past, that's the Old Testament, was written to teach us. The Old Testament has contemporary relevance. The Old Testament is teaching for us today. Don't throw it away. Don't just stay in the New Testament. Or when you go to the Old Testament, don't just read the Psalms. The Old Testament has teaching for you and I today. It's vital. It's important. This verse tells us. Everything written in the Old Testament was written to teach us. And what do we learn from the Old Testament? Well, we gain endurance and encouragement. And all of that 
leads to hope. Notice the Old Testament has a Christological focus, too. The quotation from Psalm 69, which is attributed multiple times in the New Testament to Jesus Christ, again reminds us that the Old Testament teaches us Christ. When you read the Old Testament, sing that song or quote those lines, show us Christ. Show us Christ. The Old Testament gives us hope. Hope is the most striking characteristic that distinguishes a believer from a pagan. Hope. <coughs> the Bible gives us hope. It's filled with promises that ought to encourage us. A Christian should be an idealist, but never a pessimist. Always optimistic. Because the promises of God are always yea, and amen. The future is as bright as the precious promises of God. The Bible is intended to give us hope. Alexander White was a pastor of a couple centuries gone by, and after he would visit a family in their home, he would always leave with a text of Scripture, a promise. He would quote, quote some promise of Scripture, and then he would say this, put that under your tongue and suck it like a sweetie. I'd never heard that expression. I had to do a little research. I'm guessing sweetie means candy. Take that promise, stick it in your mouth, and just suck on it like a piece of candy. Let its sweetness continue to encourage you. I wonder what, what promise of God are you taking in today? What promise of God are you feeding on today that results in you having endurance because the course for 2016 is not going to be easy? What promise of God have you taken into your heart that will give you encouragement and hope because you're going to get discouraged if you aren't already? You will. This is going to be a great year in many respects and a tough year in many others. Tougher for some than it will be for others. And none of us know but we do know this, God is in heaven, he rules over all, and his word gives us endurance and encouragement and hope. And because of the example of Christ, we can accept others just as we have been accepted. And then the last thing I want you to see from verse 7 is the motivation behind it all, the ultimate consequence, and it is the glory of God. The gift of God unity is illustrated by the Son of God, Jesus, so that in the end, the glory of God will shine all over planet Earth. We are to accept others. How? Accept others like Jesus accepted us. Why? We accept others as Jesus accepted us for the glory and the praise of God. Did you know that every time Jesus welcomes a sinner, go back and read uh, Luke 15 again, every time Jesus welcomes a sinner, every time someone who is lost is found, the angels rejoice in heaven and God gets glory. And every time you accept another believer and welcome them with open arms and take them in just like Jesus has taken you in, God gets glory. And every time you don't do that, the newspaper writes, 
part of the church went back to their trespasses and the other part went back to their debts and they can't seem to get along they will know we are Christians by our what that's accepting one another and it's not an easy thing to do Jesus in his last prayer the high priestly prayer said Lord I don't pray just for my disciples here I pray for those who are going to believe through their message I pray that they all might be one just as we are one I've given them your glory the glory you gave me so that they will be one just as we are one you see the glory of God is at stake by the way our worship is at stake too did you notice what it says in in uh, verse 6 well verse 5 says may God give us endurance and encouragement how does he do that we just read in verse 4 through the scriptures may he give you the spirit of unity among yourselves as you follow Jesus God wants his people to be unified and not divided over these non-essential things discussed in chapter 14 why so that purpose statement verse 6 that with one heart not two with one mouth not division you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ you see worship is jeopardized in a divided church sometimes you can feel it you walk into the church and no one has to tell you this church doesn't get along and if you don't get along with someone in this room and you come to worship you're hurting the worship you say well I'll just stay home no repent get right with God be an asset is there someone in this room you don't get along with that you will not welcome that you will not receive you've got some repenting to do or else the worship is going to be destroyed and the end result is God will be robbed of glory verse 7 did you notice that verse 7 is really a summary of all that has gone before the first three verses accept one another and then verse 3 just as Jesus accepted us the example of Christ and then so that God would be glorified verse 6 and it's all summarized so neatly in this one verse it is so sad when the church repels the lost instead of attracts the lost but how blessed Psalm 133 how blessed it is when the people of God dwell together in unity it's like the oil that goes down Aaron's beard in other words it's a beautiful fragrance that speaks of acceptance and forgiveness because the oil that would go down Aaron's beard was Aaron as a priest offering the sacrifice so that the people's sins could be forgiven and every time they smelled that smell they thought of forgiveness don't you love the smells of Christmas I mean the smell of the tree the smell of the of the snow and the cold for a little while we appreciate it the smell of the food this fragrance of forgiveness 
That was the oil coming down Aaron's beard. But not only that, unity, when the brethren dwell together in unity, it's like the refreshing dew that comes upon, up, upon Mount Hermon, the highest point in all of Israel, the place with the most dew. And that dew then comes down the mountain and becomes water that refreshes the entire land. And that's what unity is, a beautiful fragrance and refreshing dew. Unity is the gift of God, patterned after the Son of God that results in the glory of God. And one Christian put it this way, the Christ who unites us is far greater than the differences that divide us. And it's time to lose ourselves for the benefit of the harmony of the body of Jesus. Unity based on hope leads to harmony. And that's what we need in 2016. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the example that you've given to us in the person of Jesus Christ who loved us so much he died in our place and did not please himself but sought to please us by paying the penalty for our sin. Lord, I don't know all that might threaten us this year, but I know that division will ruin our worship and that fractions in this body will cause us not to support as many missionaries as we should. And that fights and petty wars and quarrels among us will so affect the spirit of Christ in this place that if the lost do come in, they won't see you. And our witness will be neutralized. Forgive us of our sin and our selfishness and teach us to love one another in great acceptance like Christ has accepted us so that you, almighty God, would receive praise and glory and honor on this earth. In Jesus' name.